The scripture reading tonight is from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there till I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, was in a furious rage, and he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. The word of the Lord. keeps coming up in our re-examination of the most popular children's Bible stories this year is that the Bible is sort of strange material to use with children. If you want to shield them from stories of pain and violence and family dysfunction and deep sadness and sex and hypocritical heroes and all the terrible things that can happen in the world. The Bible isn't really suited for children at least in the way contemporary society evaluates what's appropriate for children. In order to make it more appropriate for children, the retellings that we've looked at leave out crucial elements. They invent characters. Remember Stephanie? Or Grand Old Holy, a grandma worm? Bob the tomato, Larry the cucumber. Personally, I'm not crazy about old holy grandma worm. I like the vegetables. They're funny and light and, I guess, morally courageous. But I wonder if the things that we do to Bible stories to make them more palatable to parents end up distorting faith in the most formative years and in a way that we have a hard time getting over, sanitizing it, making it light and happy and safe. God is good, be good, have faith, stay close to God. Never mind that what that means is really pretty hard to discern. And God will see to it that your life turns out good and happy and fulfilled. Like, faith is some sort of charm that you can wear around your neck to protect you. Like the most primitive of ancient superstitions. If you look at what sells what makes mega churches, Joel Osteen. It seems like these impressions of what faith is remain very popular with adults. But sanitizing everything doesn't always have positive results. You know, like how antibacterial everything creates antibiotic resistant bacteria. Like pretending we can clean it all up ends up killing people. Bacteria is in us, three to five pounds of it on average. 
1,400 varieties of bacteria in the belly button alone. You don't get rid of it. Maybe we need some dark in our stories. Maybe children do. Maybe trying to clean things up makes the dark and the scary more powerful. Shallow optimism is all the rage in America today. It is the privilege of the fortunate. Silicon Valley's mantras, your mind is software, program it. Your body is a shell, change it. Death is a disease, cure it. Those slogans aren't for the broken and the poor and the sick and the sad. They're for people who have energy and money for gyms and self-improvement regimes. Keep on the sunny side isn't something you want to tell to someone who is less privileged than you, to somebody who's breaking. I found it interesting to consider traditional folk tales in comparison to popular Sunday school curriculum for children. Over thousands of years, the folk tales have skillfully navigated the dark in a way that's meant to work for children and adults, speaking to the pre-conscious and unconscious and conscious mind, dealing with separation and death anxieties, ogres and edible conflicts, sibling rivalry, anger, violence, what is inside the human being. Do we think that children won't deal with these things if we don't mention them? Stories where cute bunnies talk about love are much more popular these days than traditional folk tales, where mothers died and people bled. As if children could be diverted from their archetypal fears. As if children will benefit from being exposed always to what is upbeat and positive, always on the sunny side. The old folk tales confront us with the basic human predicaments. Loneliness and isolation, violent emotion, mortal anxiety. Of course children experience all this. They may not be able to express it in words, but they do it indirectly. Kids are afraid of the dark. Kids are afraid of the monsters under the bed. What perfect metaphors for archetypal fear. Kids are smart. Glib reassurances may not help them in the end that much. Folk tales take existential anxieties seriously, address them directly, the need to be loved, the fear that one is thought worthless, the love of life, and the fear of death. I think that the Bible does this too, actually, quite well. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, for instance. It is never shallowly optimistic. There is no way that it denies the dark. It confronts it in all its deepest scariness and in some way slightly unfathomable, gives us a sort of hope that is the farthest thing from glib or trite. And we need that, I think. I do.
far more than some sort of sentimentalized good news. And of course, it's not just children's Bible stories that trivialize the Christian faith. But maybe it does often start there. Trite is easier, and trite sells better. So maybe it's capitalism's fault. But the sugarcoating, deceptive, tritifying is glaring in the way the story for tonight is handled in children's curriculum. And the sort of deception involved insidious. So I guess I can understand why the escape to Egypt is a popular children's story. The wise men have just left, Angel warned Joseph that Herod's trying to, is angry and warns this little holy family that they need to escape to Jesus. And so they rise up in the night and flee, rise up in the night and flee. I can especially understand why it's a popular children's Bible story when I see the activities that are recommended in the curriculum. The teacher talks about this hastily embarked upon journey and then she works, or he works with the children, to improvise a tent in the Sunday school room to simulate what the journey might have been like. Who doesn't love making a tent out of blankets and chairs? And then the curriculum suggests that you pack up the Sunday school snack and you eat it in the tent while you pretend that the desert winds are blowing outside. I always find it pretty hard uh, to enjoy playing action figures with my kids or My Little Ponies with my kids. But making a tent in the living room and then pretending that we're hiding from some sort of danger and eating snacks in our cozy little space? I want to do that right now. The takeaway from this lesson is where things get dicey and deceptive. The lesson... God protects Jesus from King Herod, so trust God. God will protect you. Let us praise God for his care for us and love for us. But the thing about this story is God protects Jesus and his little holy family, but all the other children under two are murdered by Herod in his attempt to kill little Jesus. Children's Versions across the board leave out that part of the story. The slaughter of the innocents, as it's sometimes called. But in some way, it's really the heart of the story. There is an ogre in this story. There's an ogre in this story who eats children. And he's a king. He's a very powerful man. He works for the empire. And he has an enormous ego, and he can't bear the thought that there are whispers of a truer king born among the ordinary and lowly people. So he tries to wipe out any threat to his power. It's a dark story. And it probably didn't even happen the way that Matthew says it happened, but the powerful crushing the powerless happens all the time daily, here, there, and everywhere. Confronting that in our pre-conscious, unconscious, conscious minds, knowing that pattern deeply and thoroughly, being alert to it and wary of it, seems more truthful and more 
potentially beneficial to the world and the sort of people we might learn to be in the world than sort of lying about what happens in this story as a way to get children to trust God. Call me crazy, but I don't think it's a good practice to lie in order to elicit trust in God. I don't think that builds trust. I think it might do the opposite. Make fear more powerful. When you get to be 13 or 19 or 32 or 50, if you're especially privileged, and you realize that God doesn't protect you or the people you love from pain and suffering and sickness and death, certainly didn't protect the 20 little children sitting at their desks in their classroom in Sandy Hook or the 276 girls kidnapped from their school in Nigeria, or the children murdered by the drones that your government sends out. The slaughter of the innocents is terrible and frightening and horrific and unjust. And I think that maybe we should feel that actively. God saves Jesus in this story, but the other children are murdered. Jesus gets to escape to Egypt, and they all die. If you include that part of the story, what is a little kid going to feel about it? Not good. Their honest reaction might not be to praise God for God's protection. Maybe trying to get people, little people or big people, to feel something that they don't actually feel isn't the kind of thing that builds trust. Leads more likely to some sort of deception, to ward off fear, which lurks, nevertheless, gaining power. I think that the story of Jesus might offer us something more profound and more healing and true and honest and trustworthy than that, much more deeply hopeful, if not precisely comfortable or sunny. God saves little Jesus here, but in the end, while Jesus is still a young man, Jesus, God incarnate, is killed by the powerful. It's dark and it's sad, but I don't think leaving out that part of the story will do. Trust God. What sort of God? And how? And for what? I don't believe that we need to be afraid of the darkness. But I don't think that we can pretend not to notice it. I don't think that does us, I don't think that does the world any good. I think it perpetuates the cycle of injustice. The fearful seek power, crush the weak or whatever threatens them in their fear that masquerades as strength. The Bible doesn't witness to a God like that, to a God who operates like power in this world. It also doesn't really witness to a God who keeps people safe. God's people suffer quite a lot in the stories in the Bible. They feel totally abandoned. They feel lonely, bereft, 
They're exiled. They wail for their children who are lost. Sometimes their thirst is quenched. Sometimes they're satisfied. But the God that protects people from suffering doesn't exist. Pretending that God exists seems not only psychologically damaging, but collectively destructive. Climate change deniers are often Christians who believe that God is going to protect them. Some people persist in believing that God selects the few, the faithful, the strong, and the brave. What do the weak and the Muslims and the Buddhists in Nepal expect? If someone is destroyed, they must have had it coming. They must have been less, not fervent enough in their prayer. There are a thousand sick ways to blame the victim. I believe that God will never leave us or forsake us. I think it might be helpful to say that God is our strength and our shield. But the armor of God, it's not made of steel. It's made of things like truth and faith and kindness and peace and prayer. Things that might be sort of scientifically or technologically weakish sounding. If God protects us from sickness or misfortune or Herod, what's in a very different way than armies or guns or walled fortresses protect? I don't blame people for wanting a God that keeps them and their children safe. I do. But I have not experienced that God. And I don't think that God works that way. The God of the Bible isn't like that. Sometimes you have to fight the ogre, outsmart the witch. And sometimes no matter what you do, the wolf devours the little girl. If you read the stories from the scripture, the story from scripture tonight, straight up to kids, if you include the part where Herod kills the children, I wonder what their actions might be. Maybe they'd ask questions about justice. Maybe they'd feel sad, feel something. Maybe they would grow suspicious of power, suspicious of kings. And maybe that would be better than telling them to pledge their allegiance to a God who doesn't exist, than telling them to praise God after hearing a story that might not make them feel like it. And I believe God would rather have their honest feelings, their raw, angry, sad, vulnerable selves, than some schmaltzy or false praise. Trust and love aren't things that you can generate by making people follow orders or denying feelings. Trust and love are things that come in relationship over time, where you feel safe to be who you are and to feel what you feel. And I think God wants that sort of relationship with us, desperately enough to make God's self as vulnerable as God could possibly be. And I think that we might eventually come to trust the God that does that.
The stories of the gospel aren't about a God coming into the world and cleaning things up. God comes into the world and dies. There isn't really much escapism in Christian faith. God comes into the world vulnerable, a baby for sure. But even more than that, a baby threatened immediately by the forces of the powerful. Jesus comes in the world immediately vulnerable to Herod, vulnerable to power, not even close to as safe as most of us get in North America with hospitals and doctors and white privilege. God comes as a child whose life was threatened from the very beginning, a refugee. And somehow, I think that's more the point of this story than trust God. God will protect you. I believe we can trust God, but maybe not to do exactly what we wish God would do. Maybe God really wants to help us with our lives and our fears, not by rescuing us, but by entering it all. Like somehow going through it's the only way to redemption. We can trust God to redeem the world. But I'm honestly not sure what that means. I'm not sure that it's how we'd want to see it happen. Maybe we barely see it happen, though it's happening all the time. Maybe it's happening on like some molecular level like the deepest place, so deep and thorough, it's hard to discern with the naked eye, hard to discern with our limited capacities for perception. God's presence, so thorough and so enormous that it's mistaken for absence. A redemption so large and so complete that we can't quite make it out from this place, from our finitude. We don't have to pretend that God is good according to our sort of paltry definitions, according to our limited expectations. We might want to look to the unfathomably infinite, and we might want to look to the astoundingly ordinary. Maybe we don't have any idea how to stay close to God, but maybe God is closer to ourselves than we can ever even possibly be.